This is the type of man that Jesus is seeking and seeking to save. The moral ugliness of the man would have been hideous to us had we known him, had we been familiar with who he was, with his character. We probably would have been shocked to learn that Jesus sought for him. If I could invite you to join me in your copy of God's Word, then go ahead and grab that and be searching for Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19 is what you want to find tonight. You know, one of the things that is true about us as the church today in this age, and I don't mean you individually, but I just mean the church as a whole. One of the things that's true about the church today is that we are woefully biblically ignorant when compared to previous generations of believers. Previous generations of believers had such a firmer grasp of their scriptures than we do today as a whole. And one of the consequences of our biblical ignorance is the fact that we often, on an everyday basis, will use phrases that are biblical in their origin and never even know that we're using phrases that are biblical in their origin. Phrases such as casting your pearls before swine. Most of us probably recognize that one. A phrase that's meant to, to mean something that's of value, that's given to someone that doesn't appreciate it properly, casting pearls before swine. But there's many other biblical phrases that you use on a regular basis that you may not recognize come from your scriptures, such as escaping by the skin of your teeth from Job 19 or a drop in the bucket from Isaiah 40 when he says that the nations are but a drop in the bucket, or a scapegoat. You might recognize that one. Writing on the wall from Daniel chapter 5, a leopard cannot change its spots from Jeremiah 13, or bite the dust from Psalm 72. Of course, salt of the earth, we might recognize that one, and so many others, dozens of phrases that you use on a regular basis that you may or may not recognize the biblical origin of those phrases. Another of these phrases is the phrase out on a limb. I know you've used that one to go out on a limb means to risk everything for something. Well, that phrase comes from Luke chapter 19 in the story to which we turn tonight. For we turn to, tonight to the story of a short fella who wanted to see Jesus and he couldn't see Jesus because he was short and the crowd was too tall. So he climbed a tree of course, I'm speaking of Zacchaeus, the first 10 verses of Luke chapter 19. So if you are with me here in Luke chapter 19, let's begin by reading the passage together. Beginning from verse 1, he, meaning Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, 
Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Pray with me now. Gracious Father, you are so giving of yourself, and we ask, Lord, tonight that you would give abundantly of yourself. We confess, Lord, our need, our greatest need of all is of you. To hear, to know, to recognize, to perceive, to understand, to comprehend something of your greatness, of your mercy, of your compassion, something of your mission to seek and to save the lost. Guide our thoughts. Bless us with high and lofty thoughts of King Jesus. Stamp from our consciousness lowly thoughts, mean thoughts, thoughts that are unbefitting of the King of Kings. Seize upon our attention and grant to us the blessing of a fixed mind upon the proclamation of your word. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we all listen to the story read there before us, we are no doubt familiar with the details of the story. It's one of the favorite Sunday school stories that we have that uh, are, is cherished by believers worldwide and always has been for, for, two, de- for two millennia now. But as we turn to this story, the, the, our thoughts about the story really begin, I think, at the end, or at least they should begin at the end. Sometimes a story is best understood backwards. And sometimes the story is best understood by starting at the end. So let's begin at the end of the story from verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For, that word for, Jesus lets us know that what he's about to say is the purpose explanation, is the purpose statement for what just came before. That's what the word for means. You use the the word in the same way. You say for, and then what you say after that explains what came before that. And so Jesus says for, and here's the purpose statement, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's the purpose. And in fact, Luke could have even told the story in reverse because the story, the story of Zacchaeus is the illustration of that statement. So Luke could have said, the Son of Man came to save, to seek and to save the lost. And by illustration, let me tell you a story of Zacchaeus, which would illustrate that point, that purpose. And so that's how we should see this. The point of the story of Zacchaeus is this, the Son of Man came to save, to seek and to save the lost and an illustration of what it looks like to be sought and to be saved is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is an illustration. He is an example for us. He is a visible illustration of what it is like to be sought and what it is like to be saved. And so with that in mind, it is to the story of Zacchaeus that we turn. Zacchaeus is far more than just a cute story of a short guy climbing a tree. He is the illustration of the seeking God and the saving God. So let's just think briefly about this statement. For the Son of Man, and that term Son of Man is one that we're familiar with. If if at all you're familiar with the Gospels, you're familiar with that phrase because that is by far 
by far Jesus' favorite way to refer to Himself. Some 80 times He refers to Himself as the Son of Man. So it's His favorite term to refer to Himself. And when we think about what that term Son of Man means, I think the common understanding of that term is that Jesus is saying that I'm fully human. I I am the Son of Man. In my humanity, I'm, I'm just a man. And to understand the term Son of Man in that way would be to understand a biblical term by using human reasoning to understand that biblical term, which is not the right way that we understand biblical terms. To understand biblical terms, we use the Bible to tell us what biblical terms means. And so the term Son of Man is a term that Jesus took directly from Daniel chapter 7. The vision is found in Daniel chapter 7. Last night we were in Daniel 3. But if we'd skipped over to Daniel chapter 7, we would have found that vision. And part of that vision is where Daniel sees one like the Son of Man who comes on the clouds. Now, the Jews, after the time of Daniel, they would read Daniel's writings, and they began to universally understand this Son of Man figure as the coming Messiah. And that's precisely how Jesus took up the term. Son of Man is referring not to Him as, I'm just merely a man, Instead, Son of Man is a highly messianic title. It's a highly divine title. Jesus is by no means saying, I'm just a man, when He calls Himself Son of Man. We think of the term Son of God. Jesus is Son of God, Son of Man. The term Son of God emphasizes His co-equality with the Father. His co-eternality. If you want to use one of those big fancy words, and it's it's good every once in a while to use a big word. It helps us appreciate the smaller words. But a big word would be consubstantiation, His consubstantiation with the Father, His co-equality with the Father. That's what Son of God speaks to us. That's the primary emphasis of Son of God. Son of Man, on the other hand, emphasizes the deity, the divine one who took up humanity. Philippians 2, He took up humanity. Becoming no less divine, He took up humanity and added humanity to Himself. So Son of Man speaks of the God... Enfleshed. And so when we come across that title, Son of Man, our thoughts are directed to the eternal God who took on humanity, who became enfleshed, who became incarnate. So the Son of Man, this one, this God, this eternal, never beginning, never ending God who has become man, came, the Son of Man. Came, of course, that is how Jesus became the Son of Man. He came to us. He came from heaven to us. He came and His purpose for coming is to, as He says, to seek and to save the lost. So let's begin there with the lost. The lost speaks of the one who has been more than misplaced, but has found himself separated from the place of safety, the place of security, the place of belonging. The lost speaks of the subjective experience of being separated from God. Lostness speaks of being in that place of of extreme spiritual danger, without protection, without the shepherd, without direction, without purpose, without meaning, without belonging. We think of the, the prodigal father as he speaks of his son. He says, my son who was once lost is now found. Or perhaps the saddest image in all Scripture of that reality that we would speak of as the lost condition, the saddest of all would come in Genesis chapter 3 when the first son of God, Adam, was there in the garden and his father came to him 
and he ran and he hid. That's the saddest picture of all, of lostness, when the father is coming to meet with the son, with his son, and his son runs from him and hides from him. So this, this is the condition that Jesus came to seek and to save. And so we now just think of this condition or this uh, activity of Jesus to seek. He came to seek. Now that word that Luke uses, to seek, it's not a word that's a gentle, sort of an open-ended word that might mean that you look, look for something and you look over here and you don't see it, look over there, well, I, I guess I just lost that sort of thing and you give up looking. Instead, the word is packed with this meaning of not just seeking and searching, but searching diligently and exhaustively and refusing to stop until the lost thing is found. It's the idea of Luke 15, of the three lost things of Luke 15, the searching and the searching continues until the lost item is found. It always carries with it that sense uh, that, that, the, that the exertion in the looking will not stop until the thing that's being searched for is found. It's used in places like Matthew chapter 2 to describe Herod's activity of seeking the, the Christ child. And we know the extent that Herod went to to find the Christ child, so the, the extent of killing all the, the baby boys under two years of, of, of age. It's also used by Luke to describe Mary and Joseph and their activity in Luke chapter 2 when they discover that the boy Jesus is missing. He describes their activity as seeking him with the same word. And if you've ever lost a child, anybody ever lost a child in a crowd? I have. And that was the most terrifying 45 seconds of my life. And we were at a Durham Bulls game. This was, this was uh, Josiah, the banjo player. We were, this was probably four years ago. We were at a Durham Bulls game. And we were standing in line there to get some food. And I was holding his hand, looking up, looking at the menu, just trying to figure out what we were going to get to eat. And I took my hand away from his for a moment to get my wallet out as we were about to approach the, the cashier for just a moment. And then I reached back down and his hand was gone. And immediately then I'm just at the top of my voice. Anybody seen a boy? He was right here. Anybody seen a boy? You know, and he was he was for. 45 seconds was gone. What, what happened was somebody walked by. Just at that moment, I took away my hand. Just at that moment, somebody walked by dressed like me, and he thought it was me and went after him. But in that moment, I had visions of child molesters and screaming baby boys being thrown into vans and carried away to who knows where. Of course, we found them. But terror. And that, that must have been what was going through Mary and Joseph's mind and that's the word that Luke uses. They sought him and they weren't going back home to Nazareth without him. And that's the son of man's activity to seek. He has sheep that he came to seek and he will not stop until those sheep are found. And this is the story of the seeking of one of those sheep. But it's not just the seeking. It's the saving of the sheep, the, the rescue of the sheep, the deliverance the salvation of the sheep, the sheep that was lost and then in the hopelessly dangerous condition is then found and brought back to the fold. So this is the story of Zacchaeus and this is what Zacchaeus is illustrating. So now with that being in mind, our, our mind is thinking about the question, we're geared to this question, what is it like, what does it look like to be sought and saved? What does it look like for the Son of Man to seek and to save. With that in mind, let's look back now back at verse 1. He entered Jericho 
and was passing through. So he's passing through on his way to Jerusalem for the final time that he will go to Jerusalem because he has an appointment with the cross. And so we are now just mere weeks away from the cross and he's on his way to Jerusalem and he is passing through this place, Jericho, verse two, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector. So if we were tracking through the book of Luke from the beginning, we would have, and if we were counting, we would have noticed that this is now the sixth tax collector in Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel contains a a lot of tax collectors. This is the final tax collector, and this is, as he's described, the chief tax collector. So not only is his position the chief tax collector, but he's also the chief tax collector story, because he's the last last tax collector in the story of Luke. But these six tax collectors that have all now led up and sort of culminated in this man, Zacchaeus, all six of them have been stories of those whom Jesus was seeking, those who were compelled to come to him, those who were drawn to him, those who were either believing with a a saving faith or in the process of believing with a saving faith. This this all begins back in chapter 3 as John the baptizer is, is preaching there and the tax collectors come to him. And that continues to chapter 5. We see the conversion of Levi, the tax collector, his friends, the tax collector party, other tax collectors along the way. Chapter 15, of course, chapter 18, the tax collector and the Pharisee who go out to pray in the temple. And the tax collector is the one whose prayer is heard. And then all of this culminates with the final tax collector, the apex, the, the crux tax collector, Zacchaeus. So all these tax collectors are portrayed in Luke's gospel as those who are sheep that Jesus is seeking. So this man, Zacchaeus, by the name of Zacchaeus, his position, we're told, is not only tax collector, but he's chief tax collector. So just a little bit about tax collection in Jesus's day in the Roman Empire. Jesus lived in a day and an age in which the government that ruled over him sought to collect as many taxes as often as they could. Nothing new about that, right? I mean, we live in the same time today. But all governments at all times have always sought to collect as much tax as they possibly could in as many ways as they possibly could. So the Roman government, which ruled over ancient Israel, was the same. They they sought to collect as much tax as they possibly could. So they found that the taxes, they, they levy taxes on all kinds of things, just like our government today. But they found that the most profitable tax to levy was tax on travelers, travelers who were traveling along roads. Because you remember those, maybe from history class, you remember those Roman roads, the Roman roads that were built that made travel safe for the first time, the Pax Romana. So people were traveling to a much greater deal, to a much greater degree in Jesus' lifetime than just one or two or three generations before. So the Romans see all this, and they weren't stupid, so they realize, wow, that's a great source of income right there. Let's tax travelers to pay for our roads. And so they would tax travelers on any number of ways. If you were traveling with a cart, maybe they would tax the number of axles or the number of wheels or the number of animals pulling the cart, the number of passengers on the cart. If you were traveling with a, with a flock of sheep that you were bringing to be sold at market, then maybe they would tax on the number of animals or the number of people in your party or the distance that you were going, all sorts of things they would come up with to tax travelers. And in taxing these travelers, the way that the Romans collected the tax was they, they let the position out for bidding. 
And so the highest bidder on the position of tax collector would be the one that would be awarded the position of tax collector for that period of time or that year. And so if you were bidding for a government job in which the government was going to pay you, then the low bidder would win. But if you're bidding for a government job in which you pay the government, then the high bidder wins. So the high bidder would get the position of tax collector. And so they would place their bids on such and such a province, such and such a road, stretch of roads, such and such a crossroads, and they would bid as high as they think they could. They, they would make estimates to, to say, well, I think in this period of time I can collect this much tax, and so I'll bid this amount. And everything over that, they kept. That's how they made the money. But if they were the winning bidder, then they owed that amount to Rome, whatever they collected. So that's how this, the thing worked. And so you can immediately see just how the system is built. It's, it's founded upon corruption and thievery and arm twisting and dishonesty. Because the more you can collect, the more you make. And any sort of business, any sort of occupation like that that's built on the principle that the more you can collect from people, the more you make, that's inevitably going to come, become corrupt. And so the, the system of collection, collecting taxes was extremely corrupt. And those who were successful tax collectors were the type of people that were good at squeezing money from people, the heartless kind of people, the people that weren't quick to take sympathy upon people, the people that, that would just lean upon you and collect as much tax as could possibly be collected because that's how you made money. If you were a soft-hearted person, then you shouldn't bid for the job of tax collector because you weren't going to do very well. So Zacchaeus is the tax collector. And we're told not only is he the tax collector, he's the chief tax collector, which means that he is a tax collector that has bid on multiple provinces or multiple crossroads or stretches of roads. And he has other people working for him. And he collects not only what he's collecting, he's also collecting from others. So this tells us that Zacchaeus is very good at what he does. He's very successful at what he does. He's doing it in a successful place. This place known as Jericho was a very a city that was very much a city of commerce. It was the crossroads of two highly traveled, very busy Roman roads, one going east-west, one going north-south. So being the crossroads for a lot of travelers, it meant there's a whole lot of people moving along these roads and a lot of opportunity for collecting taxes from them. Kind of like... Um, Statesville, you know, Statesville, there's a I-40 and I-77, two big main roads crossing. And so this is where Zacchaeus sets up a very profitable tax collection business. So you can imagine just how the people felt about these tax collectors. Not only that, but you probably, without even needing to know much about the Hebrew language, you can tell that the name Zacchaeus is a Hebrew name, can't you? So Zacchaeus, not only was he this type of person that was good at squeezing money from people, he was also good at squeezing money from his own people, which meant he was doubly harsh. He was doubly hard-hearted. Also, it meant he was doubly hated. This is the type of man that Zacchaeus was. So I don't know about you, but I grew up hearing those Sunday school stories about Zacchaeus and reading the children's illustrated Bibles with the pictures, the biblical pictures in there, the paintings and everything. And without fail, the picture of Zacchaeus was always presented as this adorable little short guy. Wasn't it just this cute little short guy that just had this lovable smile on his face? And, and he, was, he wanted to see Jesus, but just doggone it, he was just too short to, to see him. And there's this whole 
cute little climb in the tree episode and bless his heart. I mean, just this, all he wants to do is see Jesus. He just wants to see Jesus. He's this adorable little short guy. If that too is your image of Zacchaeus, then let me encourage you to put that image to death tonight because that was not Zacchaeus in any way, shape, or form. Zacchaeus was a nasty person. Zacchaeus was a harsh man. Zacchaeus was the type of man that would squeeze everything from you that he could. Zacchaeus was the type of man who would have no compassion, no empathy. He was the type of man that was out for himself and didn't care about others. He was willing to sacrifice his place among the Jewish community for wealth and position and power. And not only did he do this, but he did it successfully and he did it well. He was a nasty man. He was the type of man that you would not want to tangle with because you would most likely come out on the losing end. He was a fighter. He was a winner. He was a taker. He was a stealer. This was his character. Now, in my mind, I like to associate things with modern day pictures of people. In my mind, I've just got a picture of the Godfather, Marlon Brando in The Godfather, right? That he's going to make you, if you travel along his road, Zacchaeus is going to make you an offer that you can't refuse. And this is the type of man that Jesus is seeking and seeking to say the moral ugliness of the man would have been hideous to us had we known him. Had we been familiar with who he was, with his character, we probably would have been shocked to learn that Jesus sought for him. But not only is he the chief tax collector, we're also told that he was rich. So once again, there is another supporting statement to tell us, not only is this what he did for a living, he did it well. He was successful at taking from you everything he could possibly take from you. He was successful in dealing in very uh, sharp and, and cunning ways with the Romans with, who, with whom he dealt with, as well as his own people whom he dealt with on a daily basis. This is the man that Jesus came to seek and to save.